again and welcome to another episode of Linguistics Talk. I'm your host, Lucas Jonathan Baumgarten. <laughs> I can't keep that up. It's range, everybody. You caught me. It's just me, Luke, your old buddy. I spun through a couple different ideas of how to start this week's episode, and that was one of the rejects. Um, after I had this conversation with Camarina Zerozua and Verla Spencer of a newish organization called The Way to Justice, I started again spinning on language. The conversation I had with them, like our conversation with Joan Braun and our conversation with Sabrina Ryan Helton and Angel Tomio of The Bail Project, and then way, way back to June for our conversation with Jack Archer, all of these conversations have sent me spiraling in different ways about how powerfully important the words we use are. Oh, and actually, I just remembered another one, Joan Braun, when we were talking about when and when not to use words like extremism and terrorism and how those words, even when they're directed at the right, tend to splash back on the left. Words literally create reality for us, and the way we use them as a society can profoundly impact, destroy even, the lives of our fellow members of society. The moment we label someone a terrorist, we get a certain idea in our head. I can't imagine avoiding it. The first image I see when somebody says the word terrorist is Osama bin Laden. It's like a little flicker. It just like slides across my mind's eye. And then like another one is Ted Kaczynski. You say the word terrorist, and I either think of bin Laden or the Unabomber. It's been hardwired into me. The moment we hear the word criminal, my brain sends me a flash of like Al Capone. And I'm not kidding, uh, Hannibal Lecter. Like, it's just what happens. Try it and see if it does the same thing for you. Maybe I'm a weirdo, but I don't think I am. Our brains are supercomputers for building meaning and associations. And when we think of a word, we often think of its most extreme, most prototypical example. And that's actually kind of a problem, right? Because not everyone who gets labeled as a criminal is Al Capone. There are often people busted with a couple pills or a few grams of cocaine, enough for personal use, not enough to run a drug ring. And quite often, that petty user gets thrown into a similar meat grinder as, say, Jeffrey Dahmer. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration to allow me to get Jeffrey Dahmer and meat grinder into the same sentence, but it's actually not that far off. So I'm sure the old heads will be tired of me talking about language in this way, in this constructive way. But for the people who maybe are listening to this for the first time or you haven't caught many episodes of range, I just want to call it out. I can't keep doing this and I shouldn't keep doing this and people are going to get bored with me, but the impact of the language we use on how we all behave, not just as individuals, but as a society is so profound. I find myself always thinking about it, especially in situations like the conversation we're about to have where people's humanity is stripped away in favor of a label. So yeah, I almost did another language related skit and I left it in there just to make the point, but also because I didn't want you, the listener, to be deprived of another masterclass in voice acting. So this little nubbit of an intro is for the old heads who miss me spending an entire episode reading a spokesman review editorial entirely in a mid-Atlantic accent, and I truly look forward to the fan fiction it will inspire. Ultimately, though, I decided to play the intro straight. This conversation is a little on the long side, and it is packed with interesting tidbits, and so I just want to dive straight in. This is an episode about how the system treats poor people, not just poor people who get locked up, as we've talked about a lot in the past, but also poor people who get, say, a speeding ticket they can't afford to pay. People we would never imagine calling criminals, 
in the sense that we just talked about it, get caught up in similar systems that chew them up and spit them out, destroying their lives and pushing them from struggling member of society to literal outcast, someone who can no longer function the way we think about people in a society functioning. Let me just give you a brief example. Imagine you're a single parent who lives up in Hilliard because that's the only place you can find affordable housing, but you work downtown at one of the hotels or a restaurant because that's the only place you can find a job. And because you're a single parent, you're always juggling childcare and work and mornings get hectic and it's hard to take care of the kiddos and still get to work on time. So maybe you drive a little too fast to work one morning, get pulled over and get a speeding ticket. And maybe that's bad enough, but maybe also because you don't have a lot of money, you might also have a taillight out or a broken mirror or expired license tabs. You might not be able to afford insurance on your car because rent is such a high proportion of your take-home salary. So you get cited for one or all of those things too. Pretty soon you could have fines that equal a month's rent. And if you can barely afford rent as it is, and you have to live where you live because that's the only place you can afford there's a really good chance you aren't going to be able to pay your fines, which means those fines end up in collections where interest starts accruing and eventually you lose your license for non-payment of those fines. So now your only option might be the bus, but who has time to spend an hour on the bus from Hilliard to downtown when the 20-minute drive was already tough to manage? So what do you do? Do you do the bus thing? Do you roll the dice driving without a license? And here you might say, well, yes, I'm an upstanding member of society. Of course, if, I, if my license has been revoked, then of course I will no longer drive my car. But again, you're working in an extremely contingent job that's one of the only jobs you can find. Do you really mean to tell me that if you are living in that situation, and again, the kiddos are a little bit late, they're a little bit cranky, you spend a little too long getting out the door, and you're late one morning just the way you were when you got that ticket in the first place. And the choices between obeying the law and keeping your job, keeping your ability to take care of your children, which are you really going to choose? Like, be honest. So now all of a sudden you're driving on a suspended license. What happens then the next time a cop pulls you over? It's nauseating to even think about. So like I said, this is in some ways a companion episode to all of our jail episodes. It's almost a perfect bookend to our July episodes with The Bail Project, which comes up a lot in this conversation. The Bail Project just works at the front end of the carceral system where the way to justice works on the back end. And it also dovetails with the Jeremy Logan conversation we had in October and Jim Dawson's uh, jail poll episode from a couple weeks ago. The work CAM does is specifically with people who have been convicted of a crime, generally through a plea bargain, and who now need to begin the long road of rebuilding their lives. So that aspect of their work is like the complement to the bail project. The bail project works on the front end to try to get people release, get them relief, maybe get their cases dropped. CAM's working on the back end. Maybe they've already pled out and now they need to rebuild their lives. But it's, it's fundamentally the same work, helping mitigate the harm done by the criminal legal system. Verla, on the other hand, just literally helps people get their licenses back after they've been taken away because they're too poor to pay fines. So in that way, the episode is about how the system can still chew people up and spit them out, even if they never see the inside of a jail cell. And exactly how these fines and penalties get applied is up to a vast amount of judicial discretion. And there are very few eyeballs on this aspect of the criminal legal system. So without advocates like Verla and Cam, people can get trapped in a cycle that's almost impossible to get out of. 
Here's Verla talking about that briefly. So when people have their license suspended, you know, and they go before the judge, all depending on what judge you get, they also have the discretion whether they pull those tickets out of collections and put you on a time pay or they say, guess what? You've had too many mess ups. Now you're, you're on your own. Right. And if the judge decides to pull like a Dr. Phil tough love thing, then your client's just screwed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what we come in at though. These two are fierce as hell. You are going to love just listening to them talk. Later on, you'll hear Cam talk about poverty crimes. That's what a huge number of people clogging our jail are accused of. And almost 100% of Erla's clients are just caught being poor too. Not that they didn't do anything wrong. Not that they didn't speed or whatever. But you or I might be able to afford a $100 speeding ticket and might be able to take the insurance premium hit and it's annoying and it lasts forever. I've had my share of speeding tickets in my life as just a white male who lived in the country. Uh, I think there's like a genetic or a conditioned predisposition to be a lead foot. But again, because I had a support system, I was able to weather those hits and not everyone can. These people aren't doing premeditated crime. They aren't violent. They aren't committing white collar fraud. They're just poor in a society that gives poor people almost zero, zero room for error. And of course, we've all heard stories of people being wrongfully convicted based on faulty eyewitness testimony that later get exonerated through DNA. The stuff that people make Hollywood films about that's big J injustice that everybody can rally around. These are smaller injustices. They're little things that when you're that close to the edge, just destroy you. And I'll be the first to admit, it's easy for all of us. I, I overlook little things all the time, especially when they're this pervasive and this deeply entrenched to either miss them because they're just like, it's like the scenery. You lose track of the forest for the trees or rather you're so focused on the forest, you don't notice the trees are super unjust, unjust, God. But maybe ultimately it's these little things that over time will have the greater impact if we reform them properly. Here's one last clip from Cam and then we'll launch into the episode. Don't you think that can be said, like if we critique every part of the system, it's the small things that we're getting wrong? Seems like it. For example, like you look at the response to the Capitol riots and now everybody wants to talk about redemption and forgiveness (laughs) and And unity. It's frustrating because we've been talking about redemption in my work for a very long time. But then again, how do those same people arguing that these people should be given a second chance for really outrageous, violent behavior when every day there are folks who are either loitering, trespassing, stealing food because they don't have means to to get nutrition for themselves. And those people could spend days or weeks in jail for poverty crimes. I mean, I think it's when you start looking at the small stuff, if you get that wrong, you could blow up the whole system. And I think we're almost at that point. Yeah. So look forward to that and more. Verla Spencer and Cam Zurazua of The Way to Justice coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 28, definitely, for the love of God, I'm begging you, please sweat the small stuff. All right, y'all, welcome to Range. My guests this week are Verla Spencer and Cam Zorzua of The Way to Justice, a new nonprofit in Spokane dedicated to helping people who've been incarcerated get their 
pretty basic pieces of their life back. Verlin Cam, thank you so much for coming on Range. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. So let's just start with, um, can you guys tell me a little bit about The Way to Justice? You're a relatively new organization, but you've been individually and together doing this work for years. So with The Way to Justice, what are you guys working on and why? Well, I think our core principle is not too lofty or anything. We're trying to disrupt the system. Um, <laughs> and so we're guided by principles of racial equity and racial justice. And it comes with experience working within the system um, as professionals, but also around the system, um, either through real experiences or secondary experiences or um, just the years of work that we've done. And so when she says disrupt the system, we literally mean disrupt it. Yeah. We mean like tear it down and make it fall apart. Yeah. Um, our goal is to be able to help people change their lives, but yeah. do it more effectively. We're in this to be able to pave the way to justice. And we are talking about seeking real justice, not something that is swept under the rug, you mm. covered up, and come back to it later. We are talking about making it go away. And what that means in practical terms for this fledgling organization is you're helping people who have been formerly incarcerated basically put their lives back together, specifically in Spokane County. Sure. Is that correct? Yeah, I came up uh, in Spokane. I went to Gonzaga Law School. I got to work at the Maxi Law Office. Mm -hmm. So I've been serving the community in various ways. But what you find in private practices, access is just not there for so many people. Yeah. And in a place like Spokane, where we have so many folks living under the poverty line, that means that, you know, those burdensome, stressful issues don't get addressed in a meaningful way. Yeah. And so to disrupt kind of that way the system works, the haves and have nots in right. the justice system, we use all the experience we have, the education, the expertise, and we use it to get relief that may be just, you know, out there and a client doesn't know how to access it themselves, doesn't even know where to begin. Um, and so we kind of cut through that tape and just try and try and deliver. One of the big things that I think you work on, Verla, is basically relicensing. People don't realize that you lose your license when you go behind bars and then it doesn't automatically get reinstated. So can you talk about that? Like what's the structure of that system that sounds kind of gross? And then how do you guys work to ameliorate that harm a little bit? So believe it or not, there are tons of people who are losing their license every day and ranges in age. Yeah. And I'm talking about anywhere between 18 to 75. I've helped somebody that is 75 years oh. old get their license reinstated. And dealing with the criminal justice system, a lot of the time it is intimidating. Um, so we step in as a barrier to be able to, to, to say, you know, you've had exposure and you've been harmed enough. Let us help you through this process. And so what happens is these individuals receive a ticket or a fine of some sort. A lot of the times they go in a drawer or, you know, in the glove box of somebody's yeah. car and time passes. And sometimes they honestly, truly forget about it. Yeah. Um, and once that happens, they are sent over to the collection agency and in order to be able to obtain their license back, a lot of the times those collection fees are thousands and thousands of dollars. And these clients simply just do not have the means to be able to pay that in full to get their license reinstated. Wow. So what we do is we would be able to pull their tickets out of collection, set them up on a $25 a month time pay. Mm. And then when that is done, they are eligible to get their driver's license reinstated and they are well on their way. But let me back up for a minute because a lot of people, you know, think, oh, well, it's just a ticket that went unpaid. Like, how could this spiral out of control? And a lot of the times is you got to think that they are dealing with 
legal financial obligations. They right. have, you know, tickets that are unpaid. They have rent that they have to pay. I mean, it's a lot of things that go into play that you you don't think about every day. When we when we look at the bigger picture for everybody, everybody comes with their own issues. They come with their own struggles, and we have to figure out a way to be able to help every one of those clients in a different way. So this will be this is something that'll be familiar to range listeners because we've talked previously to the Bail Projects folks, Angel and Sabrina. And we just talked to Terry Anderson about housing insecurity stuff. And it's like, this is the reality when, you know, if on the bail projects, so so pre-conviction, people rot in jail for months and sometimes years because they can't afford whatever bail has been arbitrarily set. It's, It's not like those financial problems go away when you sit in jail for a certain amount of time. And then to your point, you know, we're in the middle of a housing crisis right now where, where rents are increasing. Even if your life doesn't get disrupted by the criminal legal system, rents are going to go, are going up every year, no matter what. And so in a similar way that um, the bail project is trying to disrupt the system on the front end, you guys are trying to disrupt it on, on the back end. Mm-hmm. So I usually have the privilege of walking to work because I live close enough to downtown. I can, I can walk a mile and it's nice and it's good exercise. And I did that today, or I almost did that today. That was my plan today. And then my plan got a little bit disrupted. So I got in my car and drove, yeah. which is an easy choice I could make because I had a car. I had a license. You know, and, and, and then I also luckily live on a bus line because I live in a pretty nice part of town where there are services available to me in a way that a lot of other places don't have. Right. But the overall point is if you're already struggling, you already, you end up in the system uh, and then they take away your license. Your life isn't easier. It's harder. You are not further ahead financially. You are further behind financially. And then all of a sudden now you, if you are able to even get a job after being incarcerated, now you have to find a way to get to your job and you can't drive because you don't have a car. So like, it seems like a simple thing. It seems like a small thing. So it almost seems like a luxury, right? In some ways, because I live the life that I live, my car is like a nice little thing that I get to use sometimes when I need it. It's people's livelihoods and the only way they can continue to survive without, and then again, you spend an hour on the bus instead of 20 minutes in the car, that's an extra hour, two hours a day you're away from your kids. Like there's, it's these small things. And when you're talking about disrupting the system, it's like these small little things that monumentally disrupt people's lives. Don't you think that can be said, like if we critique every part of the system, it's the small things that we're getting wrong. Seems like it. For example, like you look at the response to the Capitol riots and now everybody wants to talk about redemption and forgiveness (laughs) and And unity. It's frustrating because we've been talking about redemption in my work for a very long time. But then again, how do those same people arguing that these people should be given a second chance for really outrageous, violent behavior when every day there are folks who are either loitering, trespassing, stealing food because they don't have means to to get nutrition for themselves. And those people could spend days or weeks in jail for poverty crimes. I mean, I think it's when you start looking at the small stuff, if you get that wrong, you could blow up the whole system. And yeah. I think we're almost at that point where the system is almost laughable the way that, you know, certain people with means or for another example, I know I'm changing gears, but thinking about <laughs> Larry Haskell, our prosecutor yeah. and how he can take a position that he doesn't have discretion, which is absurd when you actually, and I'd like to see the data, when you look at the discretion that the prosecutor's office actually exercises, it's to dismiss charges where often people do have private counsel yeah. or maybe it was a serious violent offense, but the person is this upstanding 
quotes right. person in our community. And so there's like a, all this like a leniency. Kevin Coe type. Oh God, don't, let's not go there. But there's like this, this, this leniency and grace, you know, yeah. extended in these certain situations. And it's frustrating for, for us when we work with people who in so many different systems on so many different levels experience the worst of it. Yeah. And COVID is a great example of how the folks who experience the worst of it are getting the real worst of it. Like we're losing a generation, generations yeah. of family members. And why is it people of color are experiencing these awful statistics worse? It's because every system has these outcomes. The, other, the thing that this triggers for me is because we lived through the 90s and actually increasingly as I get older and older, that was kind of like my heyday, right? Like middle school, high school for me. I kind of wish I had that decade back because we did all these mandatory minimum sentencing and stuff, even in like what is considered to be a, a progressive state like Washington did this stuff too. So actually prosecutors have more discretion than judges do in a lot of cases because the, there are sentencing standards where it's like, if you do X crime, you have to serve X amount of time, unless there's a plea bargain. Prosecutors get to manage their caseload because you know there's more. there are more people that are arrested than can ever go to trial, which is why like 90% of things get pled out. And that's one of the reasons the bail project wants to like get as many people out on bail as possible to like clog the system with as many actual active cases as possible. But if any prosecutor, uh, let alone Larry Haskell, could make the decision be like, oh, we got too many cases right now and we can't take them all to court. So maybe we're going to dismiss all this petty stuff. A prosecutor has the ability to do that if they want to, but our prosecutor does not. Absolutely. Well, let me, let me cut him right there to say this. When you have discretion, that means you can pick and choose. Yeah. It needs to be something that's across the board so that the black and brown bodies are not the ones that is getting the brunt of it. Absolutely. You know, so when you talk about discretion, you are absolutely right. They do have the discretion. And I'm going to bring it back to the relicensing really quick. Yeah. So when people have their license suspended, you know, and they go before the judge, all depending on what judge you get, they also have the discretion whether they pull those tickets out of collections and put you on a time pay yeah. or they say, guess what? You've had too many mess ups. Right. Now you're you're on your own. Right. And, and, and the, if the judge decides to pull like a Dr. Phil tough love thing, then your client's just screwed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what we come in at, though. We 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 we, we kind of offer grace. Yeah. You know, we 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 try to get the client to be able to 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 really be in a position where they are not feeling like they are at their lowest. Yeah. That they are not feeling like this is the end of the road for them. You know, we like to be able to give them a hand up and not a hand out yeah. and kind of walk them through that process. So we like to we, we like to try to give them a little bit of grace. I'm having flashbacks to this bail project conversation just because it like so much of that conversation and it already feels like so much of this conversation, what we were like five minutes in or something is just like about helping people feel human again. Acknowledging the humanity of the people around you. Yeah. So like, I'm going to preemptively apologize to my mom, but how fucked up is it? that the carceral system, there's, there's a sense that, you know, I think Larry, people like Larry Haskell are retributionists. Like they want people to be punished for whatever, you know, certain they do people. in certain people, certain people, certain people punished when they sort of run afoul of the state. But there is a lot of talk in injustice circles around like, oh no, this is about retribution. It's about letting people get their lives back together. But if you've built a system where even in a relatively progressive state, although the more sort of conservative half of a relatively progressive state, people come out of the system, even for minor offenses, feeling inhuman. Have you done your job in any way? Or is that system completely broken? And it feels to me like it is. Yeah, the broken question. Uh, Verla said it many or times. Or it's functioning properly. Right. Okay. The, and that's the other thing is, is it doing exactly what it's supposed to do? I think it depends on who's working within that system. Yeah. 
So to someone like Larry Haskell, exercising discretion to be one of the highest charging prosecutors in the whole state yeah. when it comes to personal possession of controlled substance. Right. When you, I do want people to really think about what crime means. Yeah, absolutely. I shared an infographic about restorative justice and it used the words offender and victim and someone called me out on that. Yeah. And so I had to kind of pedal back and think about, well, no, actually that person was right. Because those are two people. They are not these other labels that we give them. Right. And whether one person may have caused harm to another is right. one thing. But when you step back and think about, well, what is crime? You know, what is an offender? Right. Someone who has their own personal drugs on their body when they happen to come in contact with law enforcement on the street, tell me who the victim is. Right. Tell me who you're punishing that individual. Why are they spending two weeks in jail because of that? Yeah. And, you know, also explain to me then why we have so many rape kits that were sitting untested with the state patrol. Right. Like if we, if we really cared about justice, we would have tested those rape kits. We would have spent more time testing rape kits than busting people for a personal use amount of right. like narcotics. Right. Real crime. Yeah. Um, when we look at the stats and in this country where we incarcerate so many people, I believe the number is around 80%. Most of the charges that they are held on are low level offenses, meaning they're not violent, meaning, you know, no one was necessarily harmed, hurt, yeah. um, that there are other ways that we can approach these things. But until we kind of get out of the archaic mentality of, you know, those people need to be shut away somewhere. Right. We shouldn't have to look at them on the streets, put them in a cage. Right. You know, until we get out of that mentality, I don't know how we fix the system. So in addition to the relicensing stuff, what else are you guys working on? Um, so the other program, and they, they are uh, complimentary, I would say. Yeah. So Verla works with people who really just need to reinstate their driving privilege. She, she mentioned like all the things that we try and streamline the process for them because really they shouldn't be in that constant state of fear or stress or anxiety, right? You yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's a driving privilege and they were fine. <laughs> My clients though, you know, they may have had a different uh, interaction with the system because they have convictions on their record. So okay. that means it wasn't necessarily a civil fine, even though that can have some ramifications down the road, but these are criminal convictions. So they've either, most of the time they've pled, let's be honest. Yeah. And uh, the situation that could lead to that brings back the bail project. It's a really important concept, cash bail. Yeah. Um, because you know you have to start with the premise that some people have cash in the bank and some just don't. And so if you don't have cash in the bank, whatever the court sets your bail at, it's not achievable. Yeah. So you've been deprived of your right to be free, to work with your attorney, really to be presumed innocent. Yeah. And you've just been shut away in that cage until the time comes when maybe your attorney presents you with an offer. It's been so many days. Guess what? So-and-so has offered you this. You can plead out as charged or maybe they'll drop one, but you have to plead guilty to this. Yeah. And then you'll get out. Well, for most people, you know, their life could completely fall apart. I think the courts, the judges have acknowledged within three days, if you're incarcerated for three days, by the time you're released, there are a bunch of cards that have already fallen over and it's going to be hard to get back from that. But when we look at the disparities and we know this, people of color spend more than three days in jail, oh, yeah. whatever it is. So you, you are incarcerated. Um, your life could be falling apart on the outside 
um, you want to see your kids or your mom or, or you need to get back to work or hopefully there is a job that I can get back to work right. or I need to pay rent. If I miss rent, I'm going to get kicked. I mean, your whole life could come toppling down. But if you're stuck behind bars, kind of your only focus is going to be, am I going to get out of here? Yeah. And so, so many of my clients end up taking the plea. Right. And when you start looking at the pleas, you know, well, you can see where discretion comes in again. It's like, how is it that this was your first defense and it was this and, you know, you had nothing else. You were this young person. Your mom died, maybe. Yeah. And they made you take a felony. You know, and now you're stuck with this. You didn't get to go to college then or, you know, whatever it may be. Absolutely. It's, and so when we're so we're interrupting people's lives before they even start in some cases, because a lot of this stuff it trickles over from kids have rough childhoods. They're in the juvenile system. And then I, there was a press release that the, the SPD sent out a couple, like maybe a month or so ago where they were like, I'm not quoting. This is a paraphrase. Uh, so nobody yell at me on uh, Facebook or Twitter, but more or less said like young criminal uh, gets first conviction as an adult, but then they also went through like his, his laundry list of, of juvenile offenses too. So it's like, it's basically like makes him look like he's like a three or four strike loser, but one, only one of those was like a petty crime that happened when he was like 18 and a half. It's like, this is an, I know it's another tangent, but we're talking about like, it's not like you cease whatever, whatever trauma or whatever, you know, problems you've had in your youth, like stop being realities the moment you turn 18. Right. And it's like, you can't flip a switch. And so there is an idea in this criminal legal system, whether it is working as, as intended or not, there's the idea that oh, what we're really trying to do is like sort of rehabilitate people into uh, being, you know, whatever it means when people say like law abiding citizens. Mm -hmm. I know, I know you guys would say that that's not the actual intent, but, and I would tend to agree with you, but that's what they're saying. And so you can at least hold them, at least try to make the argument that like, well, if this is the intent, this is the stated intent, it's not working at all. Right. And then, you know, people lose their kids and, you know, then you have to go, it's even more expensive to get your kids back if you're in jail. And right. And how about, how about the harm that's being done? This is my, one of my biggest frustrations is when you see big organizations, big entities, big companies, big government, Yeah. when they make mistakes, they make big mistakes. <laughs> it's really hard to unwind them. Yeah. And in my experience, the systems are very reluctant to do so. Why? Because it requires self-reflection. Mm -hmm. It requires acknowledgement. And then it requires a commitment to change. Yeah. And that's what we're begging for. You know, in the work we do as advocates, I'm, I just want someone to acknowledge the fact that this is an oppressive system. It is causing harm. Yeah. And it is wasting money that would be much better spent directly in the communities for those kids or their parents or their caregivers or their, you know, their schools or making sure that they have food security, you know, whatever it may be, all those millions and millions of dollars are just, I mean, essentially, I mean, that's not all they do, but they're causing a lot of harm. Yeah. And when you talk about harm, we're talking about harms for generations to come. Yeah. We are not just talking about the the offender as they would label them. Yeah. We are talking about the individuals who have children. What happens when those individuals are, are, are sent away? What happens to the children? And then on top of that, what happens if they were the breadwinners of, of the family? We never stop to look at the provocation on why they got themselves where they are, you know, to, to, to yeah. begin with. And, and if people would just stop to, 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 to think about that. 
Yeah. And it's, it's an impact that happens generations into the future, but it also affects generations previous. Cause like, you know, one of the things we know about folks who live at or near poverty or in poverty, like they live in multi-generational households where there might be one or two breadwinners, but there also might be a mom and, you know, like a grandma and a grandpa and then the kids. And then, you know, and in some cases when people tend to have children younger in life, when they're, when they're poor, there might be like four generations living in a house mm -hmm. that has a breadwinner or two. And if that person then gets trapped up in the system, you've now eviscerated the livelihoods of like lots of people. That's one of the things you do when you're poor is like, you're just like getting by hook or by crook. And so you're frequently like helping your family members out with stuff. If you've got the stable job, cause you know that, cause again, when we say quote unquote stable job, we're talk probably talking about like working at Walmart or something. So again, if you're in jail for three days, they're not going to keep you around. They're just going to fire you and call somebody else in or whatever. It's like easy come, easy go for those types of employers. So even if you're the one that has the stable job, it's all very fluid, right? And so those these communities are just trying to get by however they can. And so one person getting knocked out of that and being sent to jail and then unable to, you know, maintain their job, like that kind of have an effect that reverberates sort of like backwards and forwards in time and then out to the larger community. And it's really, yes. really brutal. Yeah. And I guess the idea, I mean, coming from a social worker house and I've got family members who worked at CPS and have been in social work, kind of the way it goes to incarceration and, and what it actually achieves. We like to think that our government has the best interests of these children at heart, yeah. don't we? We'd like to think that the government would protect people if they are forced to serve a sentence for something that they have done, yeah. but that's not what happens. And so we see jail deaths and now families have prematurely lost family members forever. Yeah. And as heartbreaking as that, that could be even being behind bars, you know, a life sentence or a 30 year sentence to someone who, you know, is in a position that they may never see the light of day again. Yeah. I don't know what kind of message that's sending, not just to that individual, but our communities and those family members that are left behind, it's as if, it's again, dehumanizing all those players. You start with the quote unquote offender, but then by causing this harm unknowingly, I mean, we, we can acknowledge what happens to families under these circumstances. You know you're also harming their family members yeah. and you continue to push these policies. It's just, I think it's irresponsible. Yeah. Um. So you both came from the Center for Justice, uh, which was a, a very well-known organization. Um, what, and and you're kind of, so is it fair to say that you're continuing an aspect of the Center for Justice work or, or how do you guys think about that as you move forward? Because I think a lot of people are familiar with the Center for Justice and, and a way to justice is a new thing. So for people that might be familiar with Center for Justice, like what are, what aspects of that mission are you guys fulfilling? And it's, is your plan to then kind of grow it back to the same size as Center for Justice was, or are you guys gonna stay more focused on the work you're currently doing? Well, I'll start with your first question. One of the first instructions I got at Center for Justice, and I only got to be there for a couple of years, was to quote, do justice. Hmm. And that's something that, you know, certain people might, interpret differently, you know, yeah. but for me, and I think, you know, talking and working with Verla, that word strikes a chord. I know what it means. I know what it feels like because I certainly know what it's felt like to feel, you know, like it was 
I was deprived bringing a case in front of the court or whatever it may be. I know what it feels like not to realize justice. Mm. And after all these years, I have a very good feeling about what it is to do justice. Mm. And I'd say that is the number one most important thing that I got from Center for Justice. Yeah. Is the ability to do justice and to actually experience that myself. And people think of justice as like, it's like an abstract word that means something. It's, it's an action verb for you guys is what it sounds like, right? It's all those things. Jim Sheehan used to say, it's like beauty. (laughs) Justice is like beauty. You know, it's a personal thing, but you know it when you see it. I don't think that as humans, Really, our, our experiences in justice are that different. I think at our core, we all love people around us. We want to have a, a happy life. We want to see you know, kids in our life grow up and be happy and successful and do what they want to do. I think we share so many of those hopes. It's just unfortunate we can't realize them together. You know, as I sit here and think about what it means to do justice, it can mean a lot to a lot of different people. And so when I think about my whole entire life, and I'm almost 42 years old, I know I'm young, right? I think about everything that I've had to go through in my life with every institution. I think about housing. I think about education. I think about employers. I think about the criminal justice system. I think about every single thing that I've had to go through in my life and what it meant, you know, and, and what was justice and what did it look like? And if there was a thing that was justice, why is it costing so much for black and brown bodies as opposed to other people. Like these are all of the things that I have grappled with in my mind. And I was at the center for 11 years Mm. and I've I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot and I learned a lot. When I first started working at the center, I wasn't so sure. Mm. But every year that passed by, I made a commitment that I was willing to die for this work. And for me to do justice is to be able to help people have a life that they are deserving of. You know, when people make a choice, it's not a bad choice or a good choice. It's a choice that they have to make in order to be able to get over the next hump. So for me, you know, helping individuals change their lives for the better is what justice looks like to me. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that those choices don't come with consequences, but what you guys are talking about is like the consequences for some of these choices is just so out of proportion. One of the reasons, you know, when the ladies from the Bail Project are like, we call it the criminal legal system, we don't call it the criminal justice system, because whatever justice gets done is it's contingent. It's not a, a universal application of justice. It is an, it's an application of the law, of the criminal law. That doesn't mean one that it's universally applied or that it's actually justice. And so just to be clear, those people that like get taps on the wrist because their mom and dad have a certain amount of wealth or they have a certain amount of wealth or they have a certain amount of connections or their color, the color of their skin is the color that it is. That's actually the sort of grace that you guys are talking about giving. You're not advocating for being tougher on crime across no. the board. Another Take- way of putting it is like, okay, so I, in my career, I started an undergrad, right? I didn't know what I wanted to be. So I volunteered at the public defender in Bellingham. Yeah. I wanted to get that exposure and I was working with juveniles and sex offenders and that could turn people the other way, right? Like oh, I yeah. don't want to work with a juvenile who's accused of that, but um, just I, somehow I was able to do the work, but I could recognize though in the system, you know, public defenders don't have it easy, right? There are some great ones out there working their asses off, but it's hard under those constraints. Then I had the benefit of working in private practice and a reputable firm that had the history of civil rights that we had, we had resources and we were well known. In terms of name recognition, Maxi Law Firm, 
is a, probably the most well-known law firm in like Spokane because would, of its civil rights yeah, history. Right? Where else would I have wanted to say I came up from? Like yeah, now totally. looking back, how lucky was I to be in that space? Yeah. But I learned a lot in being in that space. But what we did, no matter what color our clients were, and I will say a lot of people of color who could acquire private counsel would call us because we were one of the only firms in town that wasn't all white. Yeah. That being said, we had plenty of white clients and I'll say I love any of my white friends dearly and white people have been good to me. So it's not about that. But what we did and what my goal was is to give every one of my clients the best defense that I possibly could. And that's what I felt that we were trained to do in law school. That's yeah. what I felt we aspired to be as lawyers, right? It's that idea. And so when people try and tell me that, you know, these low level offenders, somehow the policy that they sent in jail for two weeks is just fine. Hell no. If that was my client, yeah. you know, I would have been arguing at the first arraignment hearing, like judge, why do you want to hold this person for this? And I would try and give the court as much of the human experience of this person yeah as I possibly could. And for me, that was being a good attorney for my client. Yep. But the problem is the way our system is and how the dockets are over full and the public defenders are overworked and blah, blah, blah. You can't focus on doing that work unless you have those resources. And that's why it's so frustrating. That's why we, that's why we call it disrupting the system because yeah. I believe that my clients, whether they pay me a dollar or a donation or not, they deserve the best representation every time. And I strive to do that. And that's just because I feel, I don't know, isn't that how everybody is supposed to pursue their career? Like try and do the best you can every day, try and do better. Yeah. That's why I'm, I'm looking at someone like Larry Haskell and he's got what, 10 years now of this data, at, at least several years. And you know, he's been named in reports and we've talked about him. He's been in the newspapers, right? Everybody knows. Yeah. And he decides that he still wants to dig his heels in. Well, and back to the your your experience as a public defender, I, the Bail Project episode, I, I reached out to a buddy of mine. Uh, this was about a year ago. He said he had 190 active cases. At one time. At one time. I don't know how I so, could do that. So even if you, you know, a young Cam who is in that sort of a scenario is like, I want to do the best by my clients, but I have 190 of them. So often all you can do is just present them with the plea when the prosecutor gets around to doing it after they've been rotting for a couple of weeks, because like you've got 190, I can't even imagine that. I, I get freaked either. out if my, I get, I, I started having a panic attack if my like to-do list is like 10 things long, yeah. let alone 190. And so. that's not, and you know, thinking about like resources and, and professions, I mean, let's not feel sorry for these lawyers, but it's not fair to them either. <laughs> And I, I experienced burnout. I mean, yeah. um, it was it was hard to see the realities of a justice system in my hometown. Yeah. You know, with judges that I had looked up to and who maybe knew my parents. You know, and starting to realize, oh gosh, all those things that you're seeing on TV or in the national news, they're happening right here. And in fact, in many uh -huh. cases, Spokane has some of the worst numbers in the whole nation. Yep. How can that be? There are good people here, but we've we've dropped the ball on criminal justice. So the, the racial disparity stuff we've already talked about, but just to give some people some stats real quick, indigenous people are four times more likely. This is this is uh, reporting from the spokesman at late last year, mid mid 2020. Indigenous people are four times more likely to get arrested than white people. Black people are six times more likely, uh, as you mentioned, Verla. And over a five year period, there are roughly, there's probably more now because people are moving to Spokane left and right, but 
there are roughly 4,700 black people in Spokane. Not a, not a huge number. Over a five-year period, 4,300 black people were arrested. That doesn't mean that 90% of black people in Spokane were arrested. Some people were arrested twice. But when you get to a point where the the you know there's 180,000 white people in Spokane, only 30,000 in that same period, uh, white people got arrested, right? So when you're talking about that's like, what, a fifth or a sixth of the white population in total numbers gets arrested over a five-year period, basically 90% of the population, your black population, that's how many people get arrested in Spokane. That's a massive disparity. Right. And we need to make it very clear that there's absolutely no evidence that people of color are more prone to commit crimes. That's what <laughs> Craig Meidel will try and say. And he would try and show you that there, this is why it's because these people are committing these crimes. And no, that is a racist trope. Yeah. And we cannot accept that kind of justification for these numbers. And especially when they're taken in conjunction with use of force. Right. And so this is where my work kind of uh, focused before I left the Center for Justice. When I first began, it was 2018. And that was following 2017, which followed 2016. Right. And I was watching Standing Rock, like most of you, horrified. The next, so in tw that was 2016. The next year, three Native American men were shot dead by police in Spokane. Right. And this is Native land. That's the irony of it all. Yeah. And um, to me, just the the perpetuation of the this, by I don't even want to call it the violence against Native Americans. Yeah. Think when you look back at history, I mean, just start looking at old newspapers. Like you can see these cycles yeah. um, and how they rise and fall. And so I, I come in, and nearly one half of all of the police involved or the officer involved shooting deaths were Native men. And it was in the newspaper today, I believe. That oh, I haven't seen that the, yet. The Tony Lodge uh, Native Project was working with SPD for an agreement because one of the men that was murdered was named um, something Spotted Horse. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the first name. Um, and it was in West Central. And not only that, he was shot in the street. And not only that, his body was left in the street. But it wasn't the first time that the native community had to deal with that kind of violence in their own neighborhood. And so in the newspaper is this discussion of the agreement that SPD had with Native Project. And I was reading a quote from Chief Meidel, and he was kind of talking about, talking about how he doesn't necessarily want to focus on this native issue because he also wants to be able to do the outreach with the Asian and the black and the Hispanic communities. That just hit me the wrong he way. He wants to create like an all-inclusive, all people of color sort uh, of it's thing. It's kind of what it sounds like. It's like, <laughs> let's, not, let's not focus on this because we have to focus on all these things. But that kind of, I don't know. It's just, when are, when are you actually going to sit down and and do the work is my question. Like how yeah. many years do we have to keep looking at? So what I was getting to is the police data. Yeah. Law enforcement officers, be them sheriff's deputies, mostly police. A lot of what they get to do on the beat is just drive around and make their own kind of stops. They, they yeah. exercise their own discretion. They have their own discretion, exactly, yeah. And so every time there's an interaction between law enforcement and civilians, there's this possibility, and this is what they're trained for, that it could escalate to violence. Yeah. So when you look at the data, police, and we see this in specific cases and in microaggressions in the world, what, whatever reason it may be, the, they go for the deadlier use of force, the darker your skin is. Yeah. 
And so if that's happening with police interactions at the very beginning, and then we see the outcomes that you've already summarized at the end, yeah. I mean, really, what, what has our system done other than just show us how racist it can be? Yeah. I think focusing on racial disparities is super, super important, but it also, the, you mentioned uh, in, in our email back and forth about the intersection of race and poverty, because this, this net also traps a lot of poor white people too. Yeah. And so it's often just about like, you know, it, it, it's probably not a secret or a surprise that that person who was killed and left in the street was killed in West Central because we patrol those areas more heavily than we patrol my neighborhood up on the yeah, South Hill. That's a good point. Yeah. I'd like people to think about what is their, what is your personal experience with police? Like how often do you see them in your neighborhood? Yeah. What are your interactions like? Because, well, I don't know, Verla might want to jump in. Please. Some of the folks that we meet, you know, the stories that I heard at Center for Justice with the police accountability is disturbing. Yeah. And, you know, I think about, you know, had it been on the South Hill, would they have made sure that individual was covered up and moved effective, you know, immediately? Very you know, good the point. whole scenario would have been different. Yeah. Police, it's just not a thing that I see often. Right. But if I did, you know, and some of the people that we meet, what's the psychological effect of that? Or children, you know, constantly seeing that or and then, of course, all that goes with it. Yeah. Um, on my way here, I saw two guys at one of the stores getting arrested by security guards. For, Rite Aid? Uh, no, it was, a, it was the place, um, oh, Francesca's or something. Oh, okay. But there were two guys and I saw security come up and they didn't even ask questions. They just said, you're under investigation for shoplifting. And just like, hands behind your back. Just all this stuff. And yeah. we've we've become numb to it, I, I believe. But really, it's it's not healthy. It's not normal. And one of the things that comes to mind, and we touched on this, like the humanity aspect, whatever happened to procedural justice? Like, hi, I'm with security. How's it going? Yeah. Hey, what are you guys up to over here? Uh, right. Do you have some, you know, like a conversation? Yeah. Uh, we talk about use of force. Last January, a Marshallese man was killed in a traffic stop in North Spokane by a sheriff's mm. deputy. Yeah. And um, I have the report. And what I found was when this sheriff's deputy was just out driving around, what, two or three in the morning, running license plates, presumably, he yeah. saw this minivan with a light out and then another light out, ran the plate. Um, this female owner, suspended license, hmm. expired tabs. Right. He pursues this vehicle. Those are the only things that he knows on his little computer, right? Yeah. It's snowy or icy. The car makes some swerves, bumps over a curb, goes into this lawn. But then when the officer describes what he did, he comes up to the window of the car that just went over the curb and stopped with his gun out, pointed at the guy. That's their first interaction. interaction. Yeah. But then, but the way he describes the occupant of the vehicle, it's not like he's talking about a man. He's talking about how his eyes weren't looking at, you know, it's like describing the actions of an animal or something like uh -huh. observations yeah. because he never spoke to him. He never said a word. I think there's a problem with that. Well, in the Marshallese community was like, 
has been massively hit by COVID too, right? So it's not just these. Well, and why are they here to begin with? Like, think about, you want to talk right. about government policy they're, they're, and harm. Yeah, the Marshall Islands, for those of you who don't know, uh, are like literally submerging under, uh, they don't exist anymore effectively. And well, and it was that, that was the Bikini Atoll as well, right? Or well, no? I'm thinking of the medical aspect, the cancer rates right. and. Real quick, the Marshall Islands were part of a trio of island clusters that were basically bombed to hell and back testing nuclear weapons in the mid century by the United States government, which caused insane birth defects for generations of people and incredibly high rate of cancer. And this became a big enough problem that in the late eighties, the U S government was finally like, yeah, okay, you guys can like move here or whatever. Sorry, we destroyed your country. And now that climate change has taken hold a lot more Marshallese are taking the government up on that. Because these are coral atolls, like really sort of low-lying islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that are literally disappearing due to climate change. But when they get here, what sort of life do they actually have? Our, our Marshallese community is deeply impoverished, like many immigrant communities, and susceptible to exploitation, including that huge outbreak at the macaroni factory during COVID. Do you guys remember that? That was almost entirely Marshallese folks affected by that. In total, it's estimated that a third of the entire nation of the Marshall Islands has moved to the United States. And what they find when they get here is a different form of trauma, but it's certainly trauma. So all of these things nest, all of these things interconnect. And that's so important to think about when we're thinking about a holistic idea of justice. It's a yeah. community seeking haven. Right. You know, like, unless you you are Native American, I'd ask you... Why did your ancestors come here? Right. Seeking haven like everybody else. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that case just really hit me because it touches on all the work we do. Yeah. A driver's relicensing client, mm -hmm. the police use of force, a brown man in Spokane who doesn't even get to have an officer talk to him before he right. points a gun. And that's not, you see those stories come up often. Like I mentioned someone I spoke to at Center for Justice, you know, they were just driving around East Central, just stop sign to, to go forward, pulled over, immediately the gun's out. Yeah. I've had my fair share of traffic stops, especially as a younger person, right? You've got a little bit of a lead foot. I've never had a gun drawn on me. Ever. No. And what would you do? Like I, I would, I mean, I don't even like getting like, I don't even like seeing. I, no, it'd I be get, one of the scariest things you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. And you know, the uh, incident happened with my son. Uh, he was actually on his way out to go and play um, ball, basketball with a couple of friends. And all of a sudden he noticed that he was being followed by some police officers. And so he was like, what is going on? So he calls me on the phone and you know, I'm coming to his rescue, right? I don't yeah. even know where he is, but I'm coming. <laughs> and so he, he finally gets to the park and all he knows is they're like, get on the ground, get on the ground. So he, here you are, you have this terrified black teen with his wow. hands up in the air and he's shaking because he doesn't even know what's going on. Come to find out they, he was told that he fit the description of somebody that was wanted. Told that the description was way off, you know, and, and, and that changed his life forever. Like, you know, hands up, you know, every time I'm seeing a police officer. So, I mean, it, it's real, you know, yeah. I wish I could make these things up. Yeah. Was he driving or walking? No, he was walking. My God. Mm -hmm. He was walking. Uh, as you could tell, I was at a complete loss for words with that story. Cause I can't, I can't imagine her experience. I can't imagine her son's experience. Just can't. 
All right. Well, let's, let's talk sort of like broader reforms. We wanted to talk about the blueprint for reform. So maybe you'd explain what the blueprint for reform is, what were some of its recommendations and then have any of those recommendations actually been adopted? And if you could tell from my, uh, my laughter, I, I sort of gave away the answer. Well, um, if anyone's interested on the county website, there is a Spokane Regional jo Law and Justice Council page, um, and you can access some of the reports there, the, this blueprint for reform and its status report that came out um, at the end of last year is there, and there's some discussion of the grants that they've received from MacArthur, whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So where they started is a few years ago, this blueprint for reform was uh, recommendations made to um, kind of change the justice system by adopting what I would consider like smart reforms yeah. that we've seen elsewhere. Um, for example, like coordinating the courts or using diversion programs or right. home monitoring to keep the jail numbers down. Because one thing that um, you know if you've been in Spokane and you follow criminal justice is we have a jail problem. The problem is <laughs> they built this jail and then they filled this jail and then they kept filling this jail and they want to build a new jail. But there's this discussion over why do you keep filling this jail? <laughs> it, it would cost, I think, $300 million to try and replace it. Yep. And like we've discussed already, resources are so thin here. They need to be more strategically spent. Right. Um, so anyway, there was this blueprint that, that had pretty reasonable recommendations in it. But years later, after some of the data we've already discussed and the grants from MacArthur and all of this stuff, the status report came out and essentially most of the recommendations haven't been adopted and or won't be adopted. And these are mostly, most of these reform initiatives are like ways of like keeping people out of jail so that our 540 person capacity jail, I think what it was built for it, but it hovers literally every week on average, sometimes even higher, but it's like over a thousand people are in a 500 person jail. So imagine like what it's like when you cram a bunch of your friends into a hotel room on a scale of a thousand people or whatever. And it's, it's simple stuff. It's like, it's like electronic monitoring, which yeah. I think advocates would probably be like, don't even do electronic monitoring. Don't even like, we need to just end cash bail. But like, these are things that are not like being light on crime. It's like, I did a story on smart, the smart justice stuff that you're also involved with Cam, I know. But like in 2012, it was like $135 a night to hold somebody in jail it's 10 bucks a day to, for monitoring, to monitor right? Them. So it's like you could, for less than a 12th or 11th or a 10th of the cost, you can still keep tabs on people, but right. you, then you can allow them to go to work. Right. You know, you can set the monitor. Like it's, we got well, tech. going back to our previous conversation, like what would you want for your, your brother or whatever, or someone right. you knew? Yeah. When I was in private practice, my clients begged me, Cam, if you can't get me out of, you know, this jail sentence, try and get me on EHM because right. I'm a parent or whatever, sure. you know, keep your job. So it's what, it's what most people would want for someone they love. Right. One thing that's pretty unfortunate is um, the lack of law enforcement buy-in. Well, of course, in prosecutorial buy-in, right. a lot of these reforms would have required those actors, you know, the chief of police, the sheriff and the county prosecutor to work together and with, you know, whoever's behind this reform stuff right. to make it work. But, you know, they're in the position where they 
can decline essentially and then kill a whole uh, potential program like a law, law enforcement assisted diversion lead. Right. Lead, yeah. Um, which in a county like Spokane where we do have a lot of drug possession charges would be a nice way to divert people a, out of jail, and B, out of the criminal justice system for something that I would argue is is not really criminal behavior that we need to be monitoring in a, in a system like that. Well, and Verla's shaking her head uh, uh, in, in disgust, and I'm worried she's going to crush her latte cup. But So I want to talk about that. But briefly, law enforcement-assisted diversion is basically like cops pick somebody up, and they're like, oh, it's a drug thing. They can choose, and this is why it's law enforcement assisted, to just be like, okay, we're gonna take you to drug court rather than like booking you into jail. Or we're, like, I don't even know exactly what the process is, but it's, it's more or less like, we're not gonna take you to jail. We're gonna take you to get help for your drug problem, right? right? And so it doesn't even hit the courts. It doesn't hit jail. But listen how that even sounds when you say it. Like, like this is 2021. That type, like, like, like the reality of it is, is nobody is going to make that decision. If, if they had it their way, and it's called the criminal justice. So they get to label them criminals and right. it's justice for them on the back end. Right. So it's the criminal justice system for them. So if they had the choice to take you to jail versus help you get treatment, nobody's going to help you get treatment unless right. they are somebody that is really human and really get it. Right. This is like 90s era Clinton tough on crime shit that is most in a lot of places has gone away. But our prosecutor just like really, really loves to keep living in that that time. And, and right now, if there's no accountability, why, why would we change anything? You know, for them, if there is no accountability or, you know, if they can kill somebody and get away with it, why not keep doing it? You know, it's going to take us to be able to say, hey, enough is enough. And we've had it, you know, and, and we are at the place at 2021 where we have had it. So yeah. no more. There will be accountability, you know, and it, it is advocates like us that come on board and we know that we will come up against resistance. We know that we yeah. will make enemies and we're not in this to make a lot of friends anyway, to be honest with you, because this work <laughs> that we do, I mean, uh, and really like we are going against a system, yeah. you know, and when we go up against the system, we know that there will be resistance, yeah. you know. So but the thing about us is we are two women that are resilient, um, and, and, and all of the things that we've gone through in our lifetime, I'll tell you that I can't be broken, you know? So, so it requires you to be strong in order to be able to stand up yeah. to, to help create change. And that's what we are in this for. And you say that, I believe you, I, that I see the conviction in your eyes when you say that. So then is it, you know, like right now the work, the day-to-day -day work you're doing is just like the rank and file stuff of like helping people get their license back, helping people get this, this post uh, conviction relief. Do you see a vision for uh, a, w a way to justice where it's like, oh, there is somebody just like constantly putting pressure on these system level reforms or is that you guys or, or how does that look to you guys? So I think that like every other organization, when they start, they grow, you know, and, yeah. and it is our goal to be able to grow into something great. We want to be great. It is also our goal to be able to put those who do not have the opportunities, who are less fortunate, who not, you know, who do not have resources that are available to them. We want to put them on a platform to, to, to help rise them up. We want right. to teach them the things that need to be taught to them so that they can be able to advocate, you know, for somebody yeah. else in that situation. Uh, we want to help in prison pipeline. That is a big yeah. need here in Spokane for a lot of students and, you know, and people mm -hmm. of color who have suffered at the hands of the education system. Right. Um, so we want to grow into, to, 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 to help the community. We, for whatever the need is, we want to be able to adapt to that. Yeah. Like in schools, it's like kids that end up getting suspended a bunch or end up in trouble with the resource officer are the kinds of kids that end up in juvie and then the kinds of adults that end up in jail. Yes, unfortunately. But, you know, in the work that we've done, we've also seen how the system can help try and create 
this uh, mm. this perception of a student. Just like every of these interactions we, we talk about, when there's no procedural justice aspect to it, yeah. you make mistakes. For example, we intervened up at Ferris. There was a black student. It was a suspension for something that a student had done off of the school grounds. Oh, wow. And it was just reacting to an angry woman walking her dog you know, talking trash to the student and the student just piped back. You know, she didn't, she didn't, she wasn't assaultive. She was not violent. She was off school grounds, but they tried to suspend her for the entire semester of her freshman year. They didn't try. So what they did was they put this in place. So that meant you're suspended. You're suspended for 109 days. For one, this is your first year in high school. You are super small. You're not intimidating to anyone. This is trauma that we're going to inflict on you, but not only you, your, your brother was suspended in the same manner. Your sister was suspended in the same manner. Now we're going to do it to you. And what pressure does that put on your parents? You know, school is daycare for families that are struggling. And so like that's, so what sort of pressure does that put on the the parents of that family? And so let me trust. let me say this. And you're talking about families who are employed at restaurants, McDonald's, I mean, low paying jobs. And it's either, you know, the school's calling you saying, hey, we're going to suspend your daughter. And you're like, "Okay, well, I can't leave work. So you're forced to agree with that decision. And and then then you're like, well, what happens now? You know, because now I'm forced with the choice between feeding my family, making sure that the bills and rent is paid. Or do I just accept this and say, okay, well, maybe she was doing wrong. You know, I have no way to challenge it because if I if I leave, I I lose my job. So it's it's fortunate enough that she was able to be connected and and led to our organization. Somebody knew that I've done a lot of advocacy work and I intervened. And and when I advocate, I advocate for these children like they are my own children. So they, they they get the best every one of them. Make a long story short, we we were able to get that decision overturned. We were able to get her back in school. We had a plan, you know, to be able to make sure that she was successful, not just to put her back in school, but we needed to make sure that there was a plan in place that she could become successful, you know? But I mean, you got to think that if this is happening and and somebody's telling you, oh, we're going to suspend you, we're going to suspend you. If something else happens as a black student, why would I go to you as, uh, you know, if I need support or help when you are the one that condemned me in the first place? So when you talk about breaking trust, Cam, that's what it leads to. Well, it was a huge breach of trust because when we we got to talk to the student and hear what this adult was saying to her on the street. Not just that, but to hear what her dreams and goals were. She wants to be a doctor, um, you know, and, and we had to look at the administrators of her school and say, you know what, what you did may have just impacted her dreams. Yeah. She might not be able to go to grad school and be a doctor now because of the injustice that happened right here in um, your school. And so it's an opportunity to be able to speak truth to power. And sometimes, you know, there's nobody in those spaces to say, no, you know what? That was a bad decision. And not only are you going to reverse it, you need to make sure you give this student the resources so that they can make up that lost time. And so that she's not losing her opportunities because that's the outcome. Those mistakes, whether they happen in school or through juvenile court or whatever it is, the fact is, is you deprive those people of grace. You don't listen to their story. Now you've created harm that's going to perpetuate itself. And God only knows what you've taken away from that person. Right. The great aspiration of America is that you can turn yourself into whatever you want to be. Right. And the reality is, is like systems like this sometimes interrupt that those dreams when, when people are still children, 
how easily can you imagine this young lady who wants to be a doctor ending up in big kid jail, you know, right. and then having their life completely destroyed. And what a waste. And, and I say, yeah. you know, what I love about the clients I get to work with is they're resilient too. Like, you know, Verla said, we've been yeah. resilient. Our clients are amazing. You know, when you take the time to sit and talk to someone and listen yeah. and to hear their experience and to bond with them and to figure out, oh, there was, there was someone that either, you know, let them down once mm -hmm. or, um, you know, maybe pick them up. And, you know, to, to be able to know that story and to carry that story with responsibility yeah. and to try and help that person get to the next place. Um, because, you know, it is about redemption. I said I was raised here. I was raised in the Catholic faith, yeah. went to Gonzaga, you know, the whole Jesuit thing, Dang, you yeah. know, on your mind. But to me, that, that crystallized when I started doing this work. You know, when I was younger, I might have just brushed off, you know, my Catholic upbringing, you know, but now it has meaning that is real in real life yeah. because the word redemption means something to me on various levels. Like think of reconciliation, like, yeah. you know, it means something to me. When I think about Jesus Christ as a person, I think that was a failure of the criminal justice system. <laughs> Rome fucked up. Yeah. You do yeah. not want to be Pontius Pilate. Yeah. When you are dealing with, with Cam and I, we are going to meet you right where you are. Mm. And I can tell you in doing this work for the last 11 years, when I come in contact with a client, they are not just a client. What I mean by that is when they come to me, I can tell you every story with every client that I have served over the oh. last 11 years. That's how important this work is to me. It's a relationship that we have. It's a rapport that we have. It is helping them along the way. And that's something that we are, are going to offer at the way. You know, it's not just showing up and say, fill this paperwork out, yeah. take a seat, we'll be right with you. Right. It's much, much more to it than that. Yeah. You know, a part of the relicensing program is I offer a budgeting course because a lot of the times those individuals that are in those situations, they, they may have never had access to financial literacy. Right. So we offer that because we think that it's important that if we can get them to understand their financial situation, they can make better choices. And so not only do we do that financial literacy piece, but it also comes along with um, resources to help them get connected with other services that they may need. Um, life skills, you know, there, there may be a, a need for life skills, but it teaches them that they are not alone in their struggle. And that it is a sense of community and that we want to help them get to the place that they are seeking or they desire. You know, I remember doing a class one one um, Saturday and I make sure it's on Saturday because if people are working right. Monday through Friday, right. they simply can't come. Yeah. And I remember one young girl was like, I don't have any child care. And I said, well, you know, this is all women. Don't let that be a barrier to you coming and showing Just up. Bring your kid. Bring your kid. Yeah. And, you know, for all of us that was in that space, we know what it's like. And we were able to, to, to give her a hand. And, you know, that was like one of the greatest things that I've seen is all of these women getting together. And when women are in the room, it's power in that place. Mm. You know, and, and things are moving, you know, layers and layers of, of, of things are being peeled back and there's healing and restoration that takes place. You know, so, I mean, we are in this for the long haul. 
the question I kind of ask everybody to end these things is we, we end up talking about some pretty heavy shit for an hour. And then the question I like to end on is like, what gives you guys hope in this moment? What about your work or what about the world? Uh, what's given you hope to, to keep going on? You know, that's, that's a good question. Um, being in the, being in the Spokane community, I know that there is life here. And I know that there are a lot of people out there that care enough about this community to see change happen. And so what gives me hope is one, there's a new organization called the way to justice that is, that is here and that is available. But it also gives me hope to know that the community that will stand behind us, they will support us in any way, shape, form or fashion to be able to help us get to where we need to be. Now is the time for change. Now is the time to invest in something different. Now is the time that you say, I'm tired of seeing the injustices that we have seen over the course of years, whether it be in our community or other communities. Now is the time I want to put my mouth and my money where it, it, it could do some good. Yeah. You know, so it gives me hope to know that there's this new organization that's out there that is going to be able to help fight for change. And I know that it's going to be a great thing. So, so that's what gives me hope. That's awesome. What about you, Cam? Um, along the same lines, um, it gives me hope that, I mean, really after just 10 months, we were able to find a home for our organization. That's awesome. That Frida Gandhi believed in us enough to give us space and fiscal sponsorship that better health together believed in us to give us grant money. Um, and kind of to piggyback off of what Verla was saying about these relationships, it is those relationships that give me hope. It's the people that I've met doing this work that are my friends still. That I mean, I still am in touch with old clients. I do consider them friends. They're like That's awesome. an extended family. But it's also some of the people within the systems. Like we may be disruptors, but we have plenty of friends in high places. Yeah. We respect judges like Mary Logan, um, Jeffrey Smith. I mean, mm. I, I respect all you judges out there, but you know, Promise, we work. love you all equally. We do. Like my kids. We love you, kisses. <laughs> but I mean, and we have worked with you and um, they have shown us respect and we have done the same. And I have to believe that, you know, People like us who can have the same meaningful relationships with someone that might be labeled felon, convict, yeah. sex, whatever you want to do right. it. Right. I can also have meaning relationships with the judges who might have sentenced them. Yeah. Think about that. Right. I mean, I've always considered myself in the middle, kind of, you yeah. know, being from a biracial background and not really knowing you know, my father's family, Hmm. you know, this like uh, empty space or even just living in Spokane and looking different or being, you know, just ambiguous enough that people know that you're different and they treat you that way. The fact that I can, you know, maintain these relationships with these clients who are in need at the time I might meet them and hopefully I get to see them flourish, but also the folks who are in the system that I I hope that that can influence both so that maybe my clients can become a little more trusting, seeing that, you know, Judge Marianne Moreno and I are working together Mm -hmm. on race equity on pretrial release conditions. 
And maybe they can look at the system and say, all right, there's small steps, but they're making some steps. Or, you know, our great Supreme Court in Washington, you know, and the statement that they made with a commitment to race equity and acknowledging the harms. I love to be able to say, you know what, there was there was this law and there might be another one and you might be able to get relief after next legislative session. But also, I hope that those systems folks see that we are doing this work, that we can, you know, we prioritize these people that have been oppressed and harmed by the system. And I hope that that lends some credibility, not just to our work, but these people are worthy. They are worthy of this work. I could charge $280 an hour, you know, and just make money, right? Being a lawyer, but that is not meaningful to me. And my calling right now if, if, it, if we get all the reforms we want, right now my calling is just to be there to push these systems to the next step. I yeah. really do believe that we're getting there. And if our jobs become obsolete in two years because it's no longer you know something to suspend your license because you can't pay your fines, yeah. or you know automatically when you're eligible, your conviction will fall off your record, great. Because we can yeah. do this work in plenty of other places. <laughs> this is just where we're focused right now. Yeah. And I think the world can see that this is where we need to be Focus focused. Be. Yeah. And on a hyper-local level is where we can make really big impacts. Yeah. Not not just by policy that could, you know, go out into into the world, but because these are your neighbors. Yeah. These people are not going to be sitting in those jail cells forever. They're going to come back into the community and we all need to learn how to live together and in a way that it's healthy for all of us. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sitting up here thinking about a, a, this one time that I had a client and I've worked with her over the course of a bunch of years and she stopped by my office to see me and she was just out of breath. And I'm just like, calm down, you know, let me offer you some water. Let's talk about it. And she said, you know, I was going through a crisis in my life. But she said, but I knew if I could just make it to you, you would uh, give me the hope that I need to be able to get to where I am going. Oh, my God, it's going to make me cry. You know, so 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 when we do this work, I mean, it, it, it blew me away. Yeah. You know, I, I've encountered a lot of things from a lot of clients, and I've been able to help build them up. Yeah. But for when somebody tells you that type of thing, then I know that I am doing my job. I know that this is my purpose and I was born to serve. Yeah. Well, if people want to help out this important work, uh, how can they find you? What can they do? Yeah, how can they engage? You can check out our website. It is www.thewaytojustice.com. Okay. Um, we are fiscally sponsored by the Martin Luther King Center, which is a community center located in East Central. If you are wanting to give us a donation, we'd happily take it. Um, you just make your check out to MLK, The Way to Justice. Um, our website has our mailing address, which is um, PO Box 7503. That's Spokane, Washington, 99207. Um, on the website, you can find uh, little links to each program. So if you have a driver's relicensing question, you can look and see what the, what you will need mm. um, and have a direct contact to Verla. Likewise, if you might be interested in post-conviction relief, you can contact me directly from the website and we'll follow up with you. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for the work you do. Thanks for coming in to talk about it today. Thanks for uh, bringing your whole selves. This is a pretty emotional one. Um, I didn't cry though. I cried earlier. <laughs> 
that other meeting, but not here. So I feel like a winner. Yeah, no, you, you did a great job, both of you. So thank you so much for coming on range. Really thank you. It. We appreciate it. It was good to meet you, Verla. I've never, I've met, I know Cam. I've never met you before. So thanks for coming. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure. And once you meet me, you'll never forget me. I was going to say the same. <laughs> hey, that is absolutely <laughs> <forget> true. <laughs> Just want to thank those two again. What an incredible conversation. Uh, we are getting dangerously close to an hour and 20 minutes, which is too long. And it is also very close to my bedtime. I am at an advanced age now where I need to um, get a lot of sleep. Quickly, though, thank you so much to Connor Bacon for engineering and editing this episode. Thanks to Speak Studios for hosting us, as almost always. I'll actually be back there bright and early tomorrow morning to record next week's episode. We're playing catch up on podcast episodes a little bit because we had a ton of reporting and editing and fact checking and re-editing and fact checking on the farm worker story, Eduardo and Lara story called Essential But Unprotected. Go to rangemedia.co to check that out if you haven't seen it already. It sort of uncovers in the story of this one family, the plight of farm workers at all times, but especially during COVID, really close to home. Othello, Washington, you know, Yakima, Columbia, Basin area. The people who quite literally are picking our food for us so that we can go pick it up easily at the supermarket are putting their lives at risk in a very real way every single day to continue making that happen for us. And I think we owe it to them to demand better working conditions and a system that actually treats them as human. In the next day or so, we'll also be posting the Spanish language version of that story because we want um, not just well-meaning English-speaking folks to be able to read the story, but also our neighbors who might only speak Spanish in central and eastern Washington and, and wherever we might find them. So part of what we're trying to do here is make news equitable and accessible to everybody in our community. And with stories like this and cases like this, that obviously also means to the extent humanly possible, reporting that story out in a source's native language. So Daisy Zavala, the reporter, actually spoke to some of these sources in Spanish because that was the language they're most comfortable with. And it obviously also follows then that if people in this community trust us to tell their story, they've given us the story and entrusted us with it, we owe it to them to then give it back to them in a way that they can easily decipher, right? There's a lot of talk of extractive journalism. We've talked about it with Leah Satilli, the idea of, you know, national reporters parachuting into a community, pulling the stories out and then leaving. The reporting is about the community, but it's not for the community. And what you hear from communities that experience that is that they've already lived through trauma and then somebody parachutes in to tell the story of trauma and leaves sort of nothing behind for them. And that is experienced as a, as a new and fresh trauma. And so Daisy spent some time this week translating it into Spanish so that, well, I guess so that they can check our work and make sure we did right by them, but then also maybe pass it around and use it as a um, symbol of inspiration that, Hey, Eduardo and Lara decided to fight and the community rallied around them and the fight's not over, but they're winning. They have won. They have yet to be paid, but they've won and that matters. And people noticed and it drew attention to the plight and the struggle and the sacrifice they make for us for fuck's sake. Yeah. I don't know. I told you I was tired. I'm a little emotional. I hope that when this comes out, um, those workers in that community feel like we did right by them because we certainly worked our asses off to try to. So if nothing else, just to see that people give a shit 
I guess. Um, but also maybe if they see that the story is resonating beyond the confines of the warehouse or the orchard and that people with a little bit of voice are amplifying that story, maybe it'll give them the wherewithal to, to fight, to speak up where they see injustice and to keep fighting for better working conditions for them and their, their neighbors and friends and family. And we'll try to uh, amplify those stories whenever we hear them. So that story is at rangemedia.co as always. Well, and look, I told myself I wasn't going to do the pitch this week, but I'm already like 90% of the way there with that little jazz odyssey I just took you on. So while you are at rangemedia.co, reading Eduardo and Lara's story, maybe catching up on the podcast, maybe reading some essays by Joan Braun. There's a lot of good content. There's some essays by me. I'll let you make your own judgment on the quality of that content. But broadly speaking, if you've liked the work we've done, if any of what we just said about trying to create non-extractive journalism and journalism that reports for the communities that it reports about, doesn't merely report on them, reports for them. Uh, we could really, really use your support to make that project a sustainable one. For me, part of being a non-extractive newsroom means giving this content away for free, allowing people access to it regardless of their ability to pay. But that means that if you can pay, you do have the means and you do value this work. If you become sustaining member for 10 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a year, you're going to help ensure that we can continue doing this work and then providing it to people regardless of their ability to pay. So yeah, go one. If you haven't already your number one job, go read the Eduardo and Lara story. You've already listened to this episode because you're at the end of it. I hope, I hope you aren't just going to the end to hear my pitch every week. That would be a really weird podcast kink to have, but I mean, whatever we don't kink shame around here. Step two would be once the Spanish version of that, story drops. And if you have connections to the Spanish speaking community, spread it around, let people know about it, pass it along. Then step three, again, if you have the means and you feel led, please support range rangemedia.co. Thanks so much y'all. I'm going to call it a night because ah, it's getting real long winded in here. Bye.